Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I'm with my partner in crime from BDE, Mark Meyer. Welcome in, Mark. Thank you, Chuck. All right. So you and I both got a copy of the Deloitte. I think it's okay. I want to be specific. Oil and gas MA outlook for 2023. You and I both got a copy of this report and we've kind of dug through it. So we thought maybe we'd deep dive this. I got one pressing question though before we start. What the hell happened to Touche? Like when I grew up, it was Deloitte and Touche. <laughs> what happened to Touche? I, I can't keep up. Right. <laughs> yes. I, I just can't keep up. Um, well, it's, are, how, it, how many are there now? Four? It's KPMG. Ernst it's Deloitte. Young. E&Y. And. Who's the other one? That's bad. PwC. There we go. PricewaterhouseCoopers. There we go. Got it. All right. Anyway, I'm just kidding. But I'm sure there was an XTO. Now there's a TXO. That's true. That's true. There we go. All right. So they put out this M&A report, which I thought was really cool. It's you can I'm sure you can find it on the Deloitte website to to dig through and kind of the punchline to M&A in 2022 was, you know, we arguably had record product prices during that, but we had extremely low volumes. We wound up having kind of a different mix of, of M&A type activities. And so what I thought I would do is just real quick, they, they say there are now new strategic drivers of M&A. So I'm going to list these off real quick, and then I'm going to let you take this wherever you want. But one obviously is energy security. Putin marching into Ukraine made that important. They said another strategic driver is operational excellence. We're worried about cash flow these days. So M&A is you know, being used to consolidate, operate cheaper, et cetera. Energy transition is a big freaking deal. I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about just how much of the M&A dollars were energy transition stuff. There are a lot of partnerships going on in the energy transition, which is in effect kind of M&A, right? If you're doing a, a, a joint venture of some sort. And then this was kind of cool, and we've talked about I want to say when you came and first hosted BDE with me, we even talked about this, that you would start buying properties to increase your ESG scores, and so they're seeing that. So that's kind of the framework. They got a lot of great data. This is kind of 35-ish pages. Mark, what say you? Well, I, I think all those drivers are in kind of the new strategic framework. Uh, they all make sense. And, and exploring a little bit deeper, what's floated to really the top of the list, I think, is twofold. Really, the first two, energy security and operational and uh, excellence for the short to medium term, continuing to, to harvest efficiencies, having a security of, uh, within your portfolio and inventory, and then continuing to be able to, to both acquire scale and uh, cost efficiencies, whether that's through, you know, reduction of redundancy or through um, through enhancement uh, via technology. Energy transition, I think, is a bit of a uh, bit of a friction point at, at the moment, and I think we're going to see that in the upcoming Sarah week. Um, 
given the conversation on both sides of traditional energy and, and the energy transition or renewables. But I do think companies are looking to acquire capability and knowledge and technology as opposed to develop it in a homegrown fashion in a lot of ways. Uh, we did see, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, we did see, I think, a record in renewable CapEx where it rivaled um, that in, in traditional energy of like $1.2 trillion. Yeah. And so, you know, the, these companies are all going to have a path and a strategy that they're going to follow. Partnerships have long been part of oil and gas, whether they're drilling partnerships or uh, uh, joint ventures on new technology with strategic players. And then you're right. We did talk about early on, um, is there credit being given or is, is there going to be accretion of your ES ESG score and ESG profile as a result of the targets that you take on and ultimately acquire you know, are we now going to hear companies talk about this deal as accretive to both earnings cash flow and our ESG score? I haven't seen that press release, but it feels like we're in range. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it, you it know, feels it, like. So, OK, so kind of to the to the energy security operational excellence bullet points, because I think this kind of crosses both of them. And this was surprising to me. Um, I don't know what I would have answered. Like before I read this, but when I read this, so supposedly 82% of the M&A deals were for natural gas and natural gas infrastructure. And that just seems really high to me. But, you know, again, energy security, what is energy security? It's in effect getting LNG into Europe, right? Um, but it, but I found it really interesting because if you look back at 2020, call it 30% of the deals were natural gas based, 70% were oil based and we've, you know, in effect more than flipped it. And then when you start looking at M&A activity within sort of this natural gas stuff and they've got a chart here that excludes pipelines, I mean, there were 25 almost 30 billion dollars worth of tankers, storage, trucking, LNG stuff acquired during that. So that surprised me. You know, I, I think part of it may have been a bit of a hurry up in early first half to through the third quarter of 2022 and the anticipation that things were going to be very tight uh, in the in the uh, kind of Western hemisphere with respect to being able to deal with winter. And so there's a lot of momentum behind LNG, not saying that that was a driver of all of it, but that was part of the dynamic, I have to believe. And so these are big ticket items in the in the LNG supply chain as well. So from a, a dollar value standpoint, it it um, I think it makes sense. You know, no no one anticipated what ultimately happened with the uh, the weather helping the situation as much as it did. But I do think these are you know longer cycle commitments that, as we've discussed before in other shows as well, that. You know, looking out toward the end of the decade, LNG we think is going to be a good place to be, and so this is positioning. And you've got to, you got to put the capital to work with significant lead time to get you know these supply chains buttoned up and 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 operating. Yeah, no, it's interesting because we've talked on BDE about how Shell's new CEO ran the natural gas business, and they're talking about natural gas now as as kind of the future. We hear Toby Rice talk talk of of LNG as well. And so, 
again, maybe it shouldn't have been surprising to me, but it just was that that much was done. Yeah, I, I think I think the surprise can be found in the larger backdrop, which is you know the world we mostly live in. It's companies um, raising dividends, increasing buybacks, and returning cash to shareholders. In fact, I think 2022, at least as far as the upstream goes, was the first year in forever, practically forever, where uh, dividends repurchases and returning cash to shareholders and other forms exceeded capital investment in the business. Yeah. Yeah. So, so another point kind of, I guess, in those buckets is 28% of M&A activity was the Permian Basin. I think one thing that people forget about the Permian Basin is it's just huge, right? It's like 54 different counties. It's one third of all the production in the U.S. So, we go, oh, it's Permian focused. Well, it's one third of all U.S. production, and look at that—it's one third of M and A. You know, but so there was a, a focus on M and A. You know, it was the leader in M and A. The interesting thing, though, is not getting paid dollars per acre anymore. Though, I mean, I, it showing on on this chart, it looks like back in uh, 2017, you were getting paid f- almost fifty five thousand dollars per acre in the Permian. And looking today, it's like just over 10, which is kind of what we've seen. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the lower volume of deals, the, the kind of the low point in market cap traded down from a peak in the sector, not just Permian, but I think 10% of market cap changed hands in in the recent peak. And now in 2022, we saw that drop to a low of 3%. And so... You know, the the notion that you're buying something speculative or to be developed to add to your inventory when the demand has been high and is getting higher for cash flow and return of cash. I think the notion that you're you're paying premium prices for acreage when you have a stated inventory life that a, is a reasonable number of years is going to take some of the pressure off the upward pressure off of the, at least the metric that we came to know and love in the early part of the shale frenzy was how much are we paying for, for undeveloped acreage in this transaction. So um, most of what we've seen recently comes with a pretty healthy bit of, of current production as well. Yeah. And part of me, you know, this is circular and and selection bias, right? Is, well, if I'm not going to get $55,000 per acre, why do I sell it? So to me, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know from the buying point of view, if everything's three times EBITDA, then I want to buy everything I can. But the flip side, if I'm the seller, I don't want to sell. And if I don't have a balance sheet reason for why I have to sell, if I don't have a better use of proceeds, that to me kind of makes a lot of sense. Right. And I I think that is driving, you know, seller behavior um, to a large extent is is exactly that. Uh, I an unacceptably low valuation from uh, a cash flow standpoint, making at least the perception of of equity currency or using equity to finance deals very expensive, right? So um, there's a there's a gap between buyers and sellers in that regard, and when you when you combine the fact that debt financing is certainly now much more expensive and uh, shareholders do not want to see leverage ratios increase. In fact, uh, just a few years ago, 
when we were just starting into this you know, into this difficult period that started with uh, OPEC's November surprise in 2014. Normally, it's the Dallas Cowboys losing on Thanksgiving right. Day that shits all over my turkey day. But that year, it was OPEC. Yeah. So, you know, the prevailing wisdom around that time was you needed to kind of get south of two and a half debt to EBITDA, two and a half times debt to EBITDA. I see a lot of, well, we think we can we can get under one and head towards 0.5, you know, big difference. And and so the, the combination of more expensive uh, debt financing and the the push for lower leverage ratios is has really kept um, really kept debt kind of out of the the mix of major financing considerations. Because I think the only time we've seen cash on a uh, cash on a on a deal here in the last, I mean, I don't know, two or three years is Matador buying that end cap company. No, that's I mean, right. That was a big yep. that was a big check. But outside of that. And it seems like that was long enough ago that they did it under the window of lower interest rates. But still, I, yeah, I don't think we've uh, we've seen that. So, kind of um, another interesting thing, you know, in in this report that we saw, thirty two billion of clean energy M and A by um, by oil and gas companies. And when I'm looking at this chart. You saw, you know, a couple of years that may have had ten billion dollars of clean energy stuff, but most of them were less than five, and then boom, thirty-two billion. And I guess what they're defining that is is, you know, call it renewables, solar, wind, carbon capture, biofuel, hydrogen, hydrogen ammonia, ammonia. So. That's kind of crazy. You and I have talked about this on BDE. I still don't understand why the core competency of an oil and gas company means it should go put in a wind farm. But well, it'd be interesting to see the breakdown of of CCUS, for example, or carbon capture more broadly versus wind and solar. We know BP has made big commitments uh, with current capital in terms of securing offshore wind leases. Uh, They're committing, I think, pound for pound. Way more of their capital budget um, to actual direct investments in renewables, and you know how that breaks down across the different players, whether it's international players, European players, U.S.-based players. Um, it's not all that surprising because the, you know the the commitments to get renewables or your energy transition part of your portfolio off the ground is going to require you know some accelerated commitment in, in the form of capital. And I think boards and shareholders have been demanding that, at least under some of the ESG mandates and the activist mandates. Yeah, uh, and I'm eyeballing this graph and my eyes are shot, right, because I'm old. But it looks like carbon capture and wind and solar are about equal. It looks like it's, you know, call it 12, 13, 14 billion each, something like that, which – um you know, and if you look back at, let's go back pre-pandemic. I mean, I don't, I can't even see in 2019 any carbon capture capex spent on this graph. Well, which that's is crazy. That's the easiest one to get comfortable with for a traditional oil and gas company, right? Yeah. It's about putting gas in the ground. We take it out, we put it back right. in. Yeah. We, we've it's done a reservoir. For, we, we've done it for decades. We put CO2 in the ground. We put air in the ground. We put water, you know, water, and we put polymers. We've we're good at taking 
fluid media and injecting it back into the reservoir. So it's, it's really the same concept. Yeah. And, and a lot of, you know, technical know-how it's, it's there, there's a, I guess a risk calculus around all that that says we're comfortable scaling these things. I think the one that's currently leading the way is, is obviously Oxy. And then Exxon has, you know, talked of upwards of a hundred billion dollars invested over time in Gulf coast, uh, carbon capture utilization and storage. So I'm going to kind of get on the soapbox here, but you know, we, we said earlier, 70% of the deals involve buying somebody with a better ESG, uh, profile, which make, makes a lot of sense. I, I went and looked this up though. You know, it's not like the fields that were polluting went away. They're just owned by private companies these days. So when you look at the, uh, when you look at kind of the top emitters of methane in the uh, in the United States, number one's Hillcorp, right? Large private company. Exxon's number two, but then you have Terra Energy, Flywheel, Blackbeard, all private companies that are. And so I think what you've done is you've just bought a nice field, sold a an emitter. I don't think the world climate has changed any well in an absolute sense that's you know that's that should be the conversation right what have we done from an absolute methane and co2 emission standpoint if we're moving things around on the game board and you know this this conversation cropped up when you know the first the the first kind of board level activism was coming up and shareholders or their representatives were demanding that oil and gas companies emit less reduce their traditional production um, that doesn't mean global demand's going away and somebody's going to fill it and probably someone with a much lesser ESG and emissions profile, meaning offshore. And I'll make another plug for Mike Umbro, who is fighting the good fight seemingly on his own out in California. <laughs> he talks a lot about the, the pressure to shut down uh, production in California, which has long been a major oil and gas province in the U.S., and what that results in is it it favors barrels, particularly from Ecuador, as he talks about, that certainly because of their impact on the Amazon rainforest and operations down there and the ESG profile is not a good trade relative to uh, much higher standard U.S. operations. And we, we've also heard others voice pretty strong support for doing more with regard to getting Canadian barrels a, a better a better profile. They have a good ESG profile on a relative basis. Why don't we do more there to to source more from Canada? But again, this this whole kind of moving the pieces around on the game board is a relative conversation. What's the overall impact on absolute emissions by by doing those things without demand moderation because someone is going to fill that demand gap. Yeah. And it's it's likely been someone with a a much lesser ESG profile. When when you and I did the energy policy draft and we had the folks on, everybody was drafting. I mean, that was Sankey's point. Sankey's I think was the only we all talked about supply, basically sure. everybody else, but Sankey went after demand and said you just in the United States you gotta raise the uh raise the tax on it and talk about a sliding scale or whatever. Um before we kind of close to 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 talk about the why, I love this page. This is page seven 
of the Deloitte um, report, and they, in effect, gave a scorecard on how M&A is done. So I'm just going to read some stats to you. Uh, six out of the 10 deals done. So out of the top 54 corporate deals since 2005, 33 have delivered relatively lower EBITDA. Uh, when you look at on a value basis, so stock returns, six out of 10 underperform. So the same deal out of those 54 top corporate deals, 34 have delivered subpar shareholder returns. They talk about 50% underperformance in market share. And I'm not exactly sure how they define that, but, or what they meant by that, but you know, the winner's curse, right? Right. Hmm. M&A stuff. And, you know, I think a big chunk of the M&A base against which this performance is measured is exactly as you said, the winner's curse. We saw a lot of really rich valuations, um, in some cases applied by that or implied by that simple metric of dollars per acre. Right. And then you get hit with, you know, post the close of the acquisition, you get hit with, uh, an unfortunate, uh, collapse in prices where the NPV calculus says you need to put a lot more rigs to work yeah. to, to bring the NPV forward. It's great to have several decades of inventory, but the, the, the present value erosion begins immediately unless you can actually exploit that and turn it in to cash flowing assets. There's not a board of directors on the planet that would nor should put in a bunch of oil hedges because you just bought a lot of acre acreage. You just can't do that, you know? And so $50,000 an acre, $75,000 an acre, whatever it is embedded in your willingness to pay that is an oil price that you can execute on. Right. You know, and, and, you know, you buy production. Sure. You can go lock in three years, five years of hedges, whatever you want to do, but it's tough to do it when you're like, we got to drill this, right. It's got to come out of the ground. I, I'd like to see a comparison of the kind of the market metrics of underperformance um, or outperformance relative to other industries in, in looking at the, just the overall M and a outcome post M and a outcome my sense is, is that underperformance um, is perhaps more the rule than the exception. But across all industries, across all industries, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, because you know, if you really think about it, if if something is truly worth a normal distribution of what everybody thinks it's worth, and that's not a bad assumption to have. I mean, the winner by definition is the person that values it more than anyone else on the planet. Well, we, we've also changed um, objectives coming from the institutional investor side. You know, I witnessed in the early part of the shale sweepstakes, both in gas and more, more recently and more particularly in, in oil and, and even more particularly so in the Permian part of it, it for a long time was, you know, going from a mere 20 years of inventory to 50 and talking about in, in one case, I won't mention the name, having over 70,000 prospective future locations in inventory. You put any reasonable kind of uh, rig schedule and organizational capacity uh, behind the calculus of how long it would take. And I've said calculus a lot today, so that must be the word of the day. Um, you studied your SAT words the, this the, morning. The, the, 
you know, the, the point at which you get all of that inventory ultimately drilled, produced and depleted and, and the cash flow harvested is, you know, decades upon decades out in the future. And so having that inventory, having paid a current price of $45,000, $50,000 an acre, but not drilling it until 30 years later, that's a, that's a, you know, that, that's a tough equation. Yeah. And I, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head. And I think this is where we kind of ought to go. Cause I mean, just to punchline, you know, what, what the report showed, and this is a good report. Everybody should download this and read it. You know, it's, you had record low volume. You did have record high prices during the thing. Strategic objectives are different than they have been in the past. Um, and so I think you're hitting the nail on the head of, well, why? Why is all that? And I, I go to Charlie Munger whenever I think of that. <laughs> show me, uh, you know, show me a man's incentives, and I'll show you his behavior. You know, paying fifty thousand dollars an acre, having seventy thousand locations, and all. Guess what? That got me a twelve times EBITDA multiple out on the market. So guess what? You're going to get out of me. You're going to get more acreage. <laughs> you're going to get more locations. You're going to get more EBITDA. And today they aren't trading at three times EBITDA. They're trading it a little more than that. But at those type, there's no incentive to generate more EBITDA. I'll, I'll toss one more in, which is a, a famous Bob Simpson utterance, grown for sport, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no more of that. I, I think the the overarching set of incentives can be defined by current investor demands and what's been prevailing over the last few quarters and a couple of years. Um and so companies are behaving rationally relative to those incentives that are being placed before them. And it's, it's consistent, the, the lower numbers, the lower value, the, the lower um, uh, kind of cash financed or debt financed aspect of all this makes sense because anything that's left over from, from operating cash flow gets, gets returned to shareholders. That's what's gotten you paid as as a as a management team that's got that's what has driven you know stock out performance uh the better of those uh performers and so until you know until there's a major shift that comes along that changes the incentives and i don't see anything on the on the near horizon um more of the same continues which i think on an underlying basis does nothing but tighten the macro and and make fundamentals more attractive so I was talking to the CFO of one of the multi-billion dollar oil and gas companies. I go, hey, man, what's going on? He goes, man, I send out dividends and nobody bitches at me. That's a lot <laughs> easier to run a bunch of rigs. So I, I want to take it one step further because I think you're right. I mean, all of this report can be explained by how you're valued out there, whether it's Wall Street or whether M&A, how you're valued. Uh, I agree with that. I want to go one step further. Why? And I'm willing to go first on this and you can agree or you can call me an idiot, but I truly believe the political environment of we're, you know, we're destroying the planet. We're getting rid of energy. We're going to stop it. All of that rhetoric has created a real, what I'll call a tail fear uh, in investors. It's like, Hey, I need to get all my money back and call it three years and then get a return because I'm not sure you're going to be here in seven or eight years. So I don't want you building value in seven or eight years. I don't want you buying a location that we're going to drill in 10 years. So I truly think it's the political environment. Now, I'm a libertarian, so I'm kind of bashing both sides on that. But 
anyway, agree, disagree. What say you? Well, I mean, in the you know the valuation plane is kind of stalled here at uh, three to four times elevation level, if you will, <laughs> right? And so, rationally, am I willing to look out and pay more for cash flows beyond that time horizon? It lines up with what you said. I, I think it. I think it. In my opinion would be it has more to do with investors having suffered through a decade plus of literally zero return on capital, right? Yeah. And so I've got to put points on the board over not just one or two quarters, but maybe a handful of years, right? And, you know, what what happens when, if uh, Goldman and others who have been saying, you know, we're, we, we've still got $100 oil in, in the cards by the end of the year, you know, is that far enough from the the bad past of returns to then say, it's okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to allow you to start spending more and, and kind of leg into this growth uh, that's provided by uh, an elevated commodity opportunity that, that historically has never ended well because it's always overshot and usually from the supply side, unless there's something, you know, more global at work here. Um, in terms of the demand side, we've we've shown that we can we can kind of wreck the party from the supply side. You know, and I you, you brought up a thought for me that I think is fair too. You know, investors have been disappointed. Quite frankly, the tales that they have seen in reserve reports and investor presentations have been wrong. And a lot of that was drilling shale wells were new. So we got B factors wrong. And, and, and I truly believe a lot of this was honest mistakes. I mean, spacing, spacing was a nightmare. Um, what I will tell you is in 2019, and I'm going to kind of make up these numbers-ish, one to protect confidentiality, but, you know, hell, it was four years ago, so it doesn't matter that much. You know, we spent almost a billion dollars drilling wells. And we were at the spacing type point of, you know, we had drilled our initial wells. We knew where our rock was. Is it eight wells per section? Is it six? Whatever. So we were doing that. If you looked at the year end 2019 reserve report and, and the billion dollars we spent was all drilling. That That's not acreage. It's, it's all drilling and it's all basically uh, spacing drilling. If you looked at the end of the year reserve reports, and we had pr enough production history that this was probably a decent stab, we drilled, call it 35% rate of return wells, which normally you go, okay, that's great. Wellhead return. Wellhead return. So DNC cost, you know, versus that. But unfortunately, just given the price we had paid for acreage, we probably needed to drill about 45 or 50% rate of return. To, to really make the whole endeavor economic. And my point- uh, Economic defined as covering your cost of capital plus. Yeah, let's call it making a 20% rate of return on equity or something. And my whole point of bring, bringing this up is, I mean, I think we were as good as anybody on the planet. Mike Hines is an amazing reservoir engineer. We had amazing management teams. The guys at Kraken are unbelievable, et cetera. It was just really hard to figure out spacing and if you had an ounce of cynicism in you and you were an investor, guess what? You looked at the management teams and said, you said it was eight wells per section. It was should have only been six. You lied to me. So I get I, I could take it that far and see that as as we, part of the problem. We could do a whole show on this. <laughs> Everybody's had that experience where they either overdrilled or overstimulated a multi-well pad. I 
I often said that this is the world's most complex three-dimensional dynamic math problem to solve. And fortunately, what we're seeing in terms of things like analytics and just sheer data capacity and processing and predictive methods, you can now integrate a lot of what was primarily leaned on was what I'll call numerical simulation without a lot of accommodation for the important, unique physical data that a certain section, for example, that you may have, you know, 24 wells across three benches, you know, and then how am I going to stimulate that? At what frequency, at what both lateral and, and vertical spacing? And then what does kind of the inter, interwell or interlateral dynamic look like when I'm in the midst of the, of the stimulation program? Can I adjust for all of the things that, you know, influence the variability of outcomes? And I think being able to do that in a modeling exercise before you actually put a bit and steel in the ground is kind of the nirvana here. We're, we're still doing most of this by, you know, brute force trial and error. And when you do that on a 24 well pad, all of a sudden you look back and you spent $200 million all in. Right. That's, that's not a small incremental thing. That is, that is equivalent to what we think of in the old days is big projects. Okay. And you can, you can sink a lot of, of capital in a very uh, short period of time. I used to say that, you know, the great thing about unconventional is, you know, you know, the resources there. The bad thing is um, you don't know that you've drilled a commercial dry hole until many reps in usually. Right. Well, so. You, you know, you know, what was interesting is we did a lot of early stage assets back in my career where we drill the first horizontal well in a county, et cetera. First time using fine mesh sands on a frack, whatever the case may be. And what was interesting about the mindset is when you drilled that first well, you wanted to spend every dollar you needed to so that you could really figure out what the rock was going to do, you know, and then you could optimize later. And that was the mindset because you'd have a management team that would, oh, we only need to do 75% of this frack. And you're like, no, do 100% of the frack because we need to know what the rock does. When you go to spacing, it's 180 degrees. If we think it's eight, we need to do four wells and see. And then on the next one, we'll add the fifth because what we found in certain spots was you, you think it's a milkshake, right? And if you put too many straws in it, okay, I spent too much money. Uh, -uh We found in certain places that if you put too many straws in the milkshake, you didn't get all the milkshake out, right? you know, and I'm sure that was friction driven or whatever. But anyway, so one, you had to shift mind frame and then two, it was, it was a lot harder than anyone said. And so. tying it back to what we're talking about, I do think that the learnings from all of this over the past few years, you know, since the, the re-engagement post 2015, 2016 is just that we've learned a lot more on spacing completion with very sophisticated things like fiber optic monitoring during uh, completions. And then we, we have some runtime with well, well performance between parent and child wells, for example. And so the industry is very good at adapting to what it's learned and applying that. And so I think we're seeing a, a more deliberate, you know, forget about all the capital restraints, which I think certainly amplifies the, the slower pace, but I think we're seeing a much more deliberate 
you know, let's really apply the science that we've learned here to getting this problem right. And the tools that we've got have literally come leaps and bounds forward from a technology and a simulation training data sets or prediction capability um, and, and the ability, like I've talked about before, to, to really put a lot of robust, unique data into the, into the predictive tools in the, in, in the analytical tools is, is just making for ultimately better outcomes in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Which in some cases, if, you know, I look back and I paid $45,000 an acre and in, in hindsight, I didn't get, but, two thirds of the well spacing that I thought and, you know, just keep it simple, maybe two thirds of the the recovery potential that, you know, that's going to give me some pause as I look forward and try to figure out, you know, what it is I'm buying, what is, is I'm drilling and on what spacing and under what completion design. Yeah. Okay. Let's close it here. Cause this has been interesting and this, this was cool to read through. Um, let's close I it agree. here. I'm going to pick two years. No, I'm going to pick three years. Three years, we're going to come back. We're going to do the same exact podcast. We're going to have the uh, Deloitte report right in front of us. What does it say? Three years from now, what are two or three things in there? I'm asking you to look in your crystal ball. Three years out, I, th- I think we're back to a bit more of a normal run rate of traditional oil and gas m and I think there's going to be inventory questions that pop up. I think the fundamentals will be reasonably supportive. I mean, I just saw something over the weekend that, you know, talked a little bit about China demand, but uh, overall we're, we're heading towards 102 million barrels a day and raises the level of conversation around uh, peak demand. And, you know, I, I think, I think the horizon over which companies will be incented to invest will motivate more activity relative to today. And I think that's what we're going to see. And they're going to, they're going to give some time for these joint ventures and renewables and transition related investments to incubate because the attention about returns in, in capital efficiency, I think is going to m- remain very high. So they've got to find that equilibrium balancing act, but I think they're going to have to address their core businesses and the portfolios uh, through more activity that's, really the subject matter of this, of this report and this outlook for 2023. Gotcha. So my prediction is U.S. M&A uh, activity will continue to decline and it will be status quo. We're just sending out dividends. If we see the, uh, and we will also see a lessening of the energy transition uh, type M&A because I feel like people have bought their stuff and there is going to be a little bit of a weakening of the the pressure to do that. If we see an uptick in M&A, it's to the point we kind of started this with, it's going to be international. It's going to be guys figuring, I got to go get the barrels out of Ecuador. I got to go here or there. Because I'm, re- I'm still, and I don't want to be this way, I'm still really pessimistic that we, the energy business, are going to be able to make a case to the world of, hey, you need more of us. It needs to happen here in the United States and Canada where we do it the right way. So, I mean, it's a it's a tough, it's going to be a tough path to uh, trail to blaze, so to speak. And it sounds weird to use the, the concept of a trailblazer in an industry that's 150 plus years old and has really and driven, big. <laughs> driven, driven the miracle of, of the global industrial revolution that we've witnessed. But I, I think there's a lot of 
of elements to think about how you kind of tiptoe forward in the future and do what you're really good at and make sure that you have sufficient portfolio inventory to continue to execute, right? So um, that's why I, th I think we're going to see a higher point three years down the road than what's uh, what's um, indicated by the stats that you know we, we're looking at here. We got it on tape, so we'll be able to refer to it. Mark, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.